Welcome to the Sisters Community Church Podcast. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How are we doing with loving each other, especially our Christian brothers and sisters? Well, in this episode, Pastor Jonathan Martin continues our series in 1 John, picking it up in chapter 3. Let's listen. Some of you know, my name is Jonathan, and I knew Ryan way back when at Good Shepherd Community Church on the other side of the mountains. We were pastors together. One of the things that happened while I was there, there's so many amazing things that happen when you get to pastor. You get to be in so many people's lives. But this day wasn't particularly amazing. There was a couple coming in for marriage counseling. And they came in and they sat down. And pretty quickly, it was pretty easy to see what the problem was. I asked, hey, so what's the issue? What are you guys dealing with? She was having an affair. And here's this man. You could tell he loved his wife. He loved his bride. And she had checked out. And she had gotten her undergraduate degree at Portland State University in philosophy, and now she was getting her master's degree in psychology. And I asked her, you know, in the midst of this broken relationship and this broken man, and pretty much her stone-cold facade in her face, I said, what do they teach you that love is down there in your psychology department at PSU? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, it's a chemical reaction that lasts for a short while and then fades. You know, that's a sad indictment upon something as beautiful as the word, and not just the word, the concept, the meaning of the word love, that it's reduced to a chemical reaction that comes for a while and then fades and then it's gone. Now, I have a question for you. How many of you think that that's what love is? Well, if you're here in the church, hopefully you don't think that. Hopefully you believe it's something a little bit greater than that. But how many people out in our society practically believe that that's what it is? The way they... It's interesting because even though there are a growing number of atheists who view our body as just this physical mechanism at the core, when we're feeling feelings of love or emotion, guess, guess what's going on in our bodies? It is a chemical reaction. But when you reduce love to that chemical reaction, you could equally look at it this way. You, you can say, well, love is such a powerful force that it creates chemical reactions all through our bodies. And all of us have felt those chemical reactions, haven't we? So, but... As you go around, people don't believe that. You know, I've done a lot of weddings, and people who are standing at the altar don't believe, at least while they're standing at the altar, that it's just a chemical reaction that's going to fade. They're actually committing to each other because love is something that is permanent, and they know it's supposed to last. In fact, so many people whose parents broke up and divorced, you see them standing at the altar. So what they learn from their parents is that it is something that breaks up and doesn't last, but yet they believe it's something more because you're seeing them pledging their love to one another. You know, all across our society, you see people using the word love to justify all kinds of things. Well, they love each other. Have you heard that one? Yeah. So love, evidently, if love has something to do with it, or at least the word love has something to do with it, then it justifies whatever it is that you're you're doing. And 
And yet, what is love? If somebody asked you to define the word love, how would you define it? It's a very important question. In fact, where do you even begin? See, here's this this word, there's this concept. All over the world, people live for it, look for it, believe in it, pursue it. And yet you ask them, what is it that you're pursuing? And they're not really sure. They don't know how to define what it is that they're looking for. Because it's something greater than what we have. Humans recognize that everywhere. I remember I was in China and we were doing this English corner. And English corner is where a foreigner shows up. And just because you show up on a certain night, everybody comes and wants to practice their English. So we were talking about love at this table and everybody's listening. And I said, so what is the definition of, of love? And nobody has an answer. I mean, none. And they try. It's a feeling. That's the most common one. No, love is a feeling. That's how most people reduce it to, which is not much better than a chemical reaction that comes and fades because feelings come and fade, right? And I said, well, I have a definition for it. And this one girl goes, what is it? She was so intense on the, what is the definition? She really wanted to know. I said, I'm not going to tell you mine. You have to go home and think about it for two days. Come up with yours and then we'll compare them and we'll talk about it. And I remember she went home and she took me up on it. She thought about it. She wrestled with it. And quite frankly, I think it's one of the best questions you can ask people when they throw this thing out. Well, it's love. Well, what do you mean by love? Well, we have a book. It's called the Bible. And at the very center of this book, there's this concept and this attribute called love. It's interesting. If you go study Islam, do you know it's conspicuously absent from the Quran? The love of God. It's the fear of God. It's the power of God. It's the it's the all-powerful, you know, it's, his, it's the fact he's all-powerful, and he's quite frankly, whatever he says goes. But love is really absent. In the Buddhist teachings, love is really not there. Um, it's hidden on the pages. But at the center of this book, it talks about love. In fact, some people can argue, and I would be willing to argue, that God's chief, chief attribute, other outside his chief moral attribute, is that of love. Even his judgment, even his wrath comes out of his love. They're not two different things. They're actually tied together. So you have this. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. They're tied together. So right at the center you have this it, and when God defines himself and who he is, he uses the word loving kindness that lasts forever. He's overflowing with loving kindness. When Jesus comes, he gives the word love a meaning. And not just a meaning, the best possible of meanings. And we have a passage today in 1 John that actually lays down what love is, and we're going to talk about that this morning. But before we get to our passage for today, we're going to read a passage that John is referring to, 
and he's referring to it out of the book of John, okay? You guys know the book of John, which is John 3.16, which you see at every football game, you know, up there in the stands. At least you used to, right behind the goalpost. When I was a kid, there was this guy who bought tickets to every game that was going to be televised, and he got behind the goalpost, so every time it went through, he's standing there with John 3.16. So he was, uh, they called him Banner Man. So anyway, um, preaching the gospel, one football game at a time. Um, so John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John wrote that. People called John the apostle of love. He's the one that said, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. He described himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Well, didn't Jesus love all the disciples? Yes, but guess who felt it? All of them did. But John felt so loved by Jesus, he felt obligated to say, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Isn't that cool? I had a friend that used to say, well, I don't know about you, but I know this. Jesus loves me. Honestly, that's the way all of us should feel. We should, if we really know God, it's just like, wow, his love is amazing. So John, the apostle of love, who spends his time in the book of John writing about love, then comes to 1 John and he writes again. So listen to this. This is from the, the gospel of John, John 13. In John 13, this is right after Jesus washes the disciples' feet and shows them that the big boss is not to stay on top. He's supposed to come down and serve others and see them lifted up. And so right after he washes their feet, which is the lowest job imaginable in the culture, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give you. Whoa, a new commandment. So this is a commandment that we don't see in the Old Testament, or we do? Because Jesus is saying it's new. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Isn't that powerful? By this, all, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for whom? For them? That's not what it says. They will know you're my disciples if you have love for whom? For one another. That they see something radically different about what you have for one another. So Jesus proclaims this, and he, he did it by demonstrating climbing down to see them lifted up by washing their feet. We know what Jesus did the next day. He cleansed them completely of their sins. And he says, this is just as I have loved you. So he's defining love as the way I'm loving you is love. Now, in that very way, you go love others. Jesus tells us to love one another. His new commandment, commandments, love your neighbor, love God. We have all these different commandments, but the new one, when the church was being born and it was given birth through the disciples, so the new commandment is, you guys here in the body of Jesus, you love one another. So what does it mean to love? What, is it what does the word mean? I remember um, I had been wrestling with this. In fact, I've been wrestling with trying to define the word love for like 30 years. 
And every year I tweak it a little bit, a new, a new little tweak to the definition. Because if we don't know what it is that we're pursuing and what we are to be doing and what love is to look like, then are we ever going to be truly loving people? So I've been working on this, and, and guess where we get our definition of words? Your concept of love, where did you get your concept of love? Think about this for a second. Where did you get your concept of the word love? From your mom, first and foremost, from your parents. Because they hug you, they hold you on your knee, they play with you, and then they say what? I love you. So the words that we learn, I, I don't think any of you have ever looked at, maybe, have any of you ever looked up the word love in the dictionary? Yes or no? No, we don't. We get our concept of the word from somebody he use, who uses it in a context. What happens if you get your concept of a guy, girls, a guy who wants to take advantage of you and he says he loves you, but in reality he's just trying to use you, okay? They use the word and you think it means something, but it doesn't. You see, we get this, our definition of the word love, and then when we hear God loves us, what does that mean to us? And again, all of us know that the word love means something a little more than what we've seen in life. And we pursue, and, and almost everybody, you can ask even atheists again, do you believe in love? And they go, yeah, yeah, love's a very important thing. So, but what is it? Well, one time I was on the airplane, and God has given me some amazing conversations with different people. We were flying back from Africa, and I was sitting next to this woman, um, and I found her name's Kim started asking about her, talk about intimidation. She was brilliant. She had graduated from MIT with her PhD. Okay, that's like top of the top. And she studied marine biology. In fact, she studied like plankton blooms and developments in the, in the ocean. And do you guys realize if plankton dies, so does the rest of the world? It's pretty scary. Everything's dependent on that plankton surviving in the ocean because without it, the whole food system breaks down and the whole world just ends. Pretty scary. Okay, so this girl had a lot of power in her hands, okay? She could end the world just like that. Um, so she was, um, we were sitting there and we started talking about, and I, she was from France, but she had studied in Canada. She didn't even have an accent, so it even showed she was more brilliant. Her English was perfect. And, um, and we started talking. She had just gotten married. And we were talking about what I had been doing in Africa, and I started asking her about her marriage. And I asked her the question, what do you believe love is? Okay, here she's the scientist. And she didn't dare reduce it to a chemical reaction. She knew there was something more about it. So I, I started asking her some questions about love. She couldn't answer the question, though. She didn't know what it was, but she knows it's important. I asked her, where does it come from? She didn't know. And I said, well, let me ask you some questions about love, and you answer my questions. And so I asked her a few questions, so I'm going to ask you the same questions. Which is a greater love, a parent who loves his child um, so much that every time the child wants candy, the mama just gives the baby candy? Or the parent who goes, thinks about the child's future and not just about the immediate need. And how did this brilliant scientist answer? She said, well, the one who thinks about the child's future. And we all recognize that. How many of you have been around a spoiled child? 
But the problem is, mama really feels like she's loving the child, doesn't she? I'm just loving the child. I love the child. I want to give the child what it... But without the future in mind, it's not love at all. In fact, it's destruction. You might feel emotions of love, but every time you give that kid candy instead of a real meal, you're actually destroying the child's future, the teeth, the health. Do you see what I'm saying? So she goes, oh, the one that, that takes the future into consideration. Well, what if the mama just takes, thinks about a year ahead of time? Which is a greater mama who thinks about what their kid's going to be doing in first grade or the mom that starts saying, I want to prepare my child for a future in high school? Well, the one who wants to prepare them for high school, yeah. What, what about one who wants to prepare them for life and once they're out of the home? And this is one of the problems where love breaks down a lot today is people don't prepare their kids for a future outside the home. And quite frankly, a lot of times it's because of love. My son lived with us. We were helping him get his master's degree, and he, we, he could live at home as long as he was going to school. Guess what? He just moved out of the home, and mom and I, Janie and I, are really sad. He's gone. But isn't that what you raise your kid to do so he can go and work and provide and have a family? So which is the greater love that prepares the child to play computer games in the basement all day long, but you have a companion, or that prepares them for life and to love themselves and to love another human being and to love their own kids. And what did she answer? One that prepares them for life and to love their own kids. And I said, could there be a greater love in, with the future in mind that I'm loving this person, I'm loving my children in such a way that on their deathbed, not my deathbed, but on their deathbed, they would have no regrets. That that is always in my mind. And she goes, no, that's, that's the greatest love. And I said, but there could be one greater. What if there's something beyond the grave? And I'm raising my kid not only to have no regrets in this life, but to be prepared for something that's eternal. There is no greater future than that. And she goes, you're right. If such a love exists, then that would be the greatest kind of love. You see, love takes into consideration another person's future. It doesn't just use somebody right now and then discard them. And it doesn't just think about me. It thinks about them, and it thinks about them in their future and what is best for them. Ultimately, the greatest love would think what's best for them for eternity. What's their highest good? So she agreed that it would be an eternal love would be the greatest kind that keeps eternity in mind. And I said, which is a greater love? The love that I love you because you loved me. Okay? I scratch your back because you scratch mine. We love each other. You love me so well that I love you back. Or the love that loves you even though you're not lovable. Even though you're unkind. She goes, oh, the second's much greater. What would be the greatest love? What kind of resistance, what kind of endurance would love have? So I, just like your children, do you just love your children when they're lovable? Okay, right, parents? How far would that get you? Okay, okay. Yeah, not even one day, okay? Because that little baby isn't lovable when it's screaming in the middle of the night, okay? But you love anyway. 
You don't just love somebody that loves you back. And Jesus even talked about this. Love, when it faces resistance and hardship, continues and pursues. And she goes, yeah, I agree. So what's the greatest kind of resistance? Well, somebody, she said, somebody that actually hates you. And you still love them back. I said, like an enemy? Yeah, like an enemy. And you still love them even though they're your enemy and trying to hurt you? She goes, yeah, that would be the greatest love. Well, what if they're actually killing you? They hate you so much that they're actually taking your life and you still are praying for them and you still want their best and you still have the eternal good in mind. She goes, there'd be no, kind, there'd be no greater love than that. To endure that kind of hostility and to have that kind of endurance. And then the last question I asked her, I said, well, which is a greater love? If I look over and see what Bill Gates has, and so I decide to love him, okay, because he has a lot, right? Or I find somebody in, in, in the church that is pretty well-to-do, and I decide to become their friend, okay? Or I find somebody that, that has nothing to offer me. In fact, they're doing not pretty poorly, but I decide to love them, and, I, and I'm willing to give up what I have in order to help them get situated, which is a greater love. Well, obviously, this, this has selfish motives, or it can anyway, right? Somebody with power, with resources, with money, and I become their friend, versus somebody who has nothing. In fact, I have to give up my power. I have to give up my resources. I have to give up the things that I have in order to help them. Which is greater love? Well, the one who steps down to lift up, she says. And I said, well, what if, you know, for me to love Bill Gates, what if Bill Gates were to give up everything he had, just give it all up, and he were to go and invest in some very poor community and just give himself to that community and seeing their devices. Whoa, that would be... When you have a lot and you sacrifice, the greater the sacrifice, she said, the greater the love. The greater we're willing to sacrifice and the greater we actually do sacrifice, the greater the love. And, and we've had instances of that. People look at Mother Teresa, for instance. And what she gave up to go work with whom? Orphans in the slums of India. And it's interesting because pretty much nobody can find a fault with that woman. They realize that what she gave up to love people who had nothing, she was willing to sacrifice anything. In this being willing to step down to see others win. And she goes, no, the... The greater the sacrifice, the greater the willing to sacrifice, the greater the things you're willing to give up. Well, what's the greatest thing you can give up? Your life. Yeah, someone who's willing to give up everything, even their own life, there can't be a greater love than that. She agreed. And I said, well, let me tell you a story, and you tell me if you can improve upon this. You know about Jesus, and she goes, yeah, and she goes, I I've been thinking a lot about him lately. I said, why did Jesus come? He came from where? And, and I asked her, 
according to what you know about Jesus, who is he? He goes, well, the people, I grew up Catholic, she said. She goes, um, they say he's God. Can you get any higher than that? What happens when you go higher than God? Guess who's still there? God is, okay? You can't imagine a being higher than God, who has more than God. He created everything. How far did Jesus go down? Okay, first of all, he came into a culture. None of us know this because we're Americans, but have you ever been in a country that's occupied by a foreign power or amongst a people group that's oppressed? I lived in China amongst the Uyghur people group. Some of you have heard them in the news. They were an oppressed people. The Chinese were their rulers, and there's nothing but hatred there in that culture. It's a horrible place to be. And that's the kind of place Jesus chose to come down to, an occupied people, the Jews, occupied by the Romans. He came at a time when, and I asked this, when medicine was good or bad? When nutrition was good or bad? When life was far worse? Some of you have been to Mexico and you go, yeah, they're really poor there. Nothing compared to what Jerusalem was 2,000 years ago. The stench, the things that we would have experienced back then, the hardships, no electricity, no running water. You know, it's the hardships that you would experience back there. That's when Jesus chose to come, from God down to this culture. He started off his life as a refugee. He had to flee to Egypt. That's low. He came back somewhere growing up. Joseph died, his father, probably of something very curable. By the way, just real quickly, raise your hand if anybody in here has had appendicitis. Raise your hand. Okay, look at all these. Raise them high, right? Okay. All of you are dead if you were born 2,000 years ago. You're alive today because of modern medicine. Joseph, Jesus' dad, appendicitis would have killed him. It killed everybody back then. Their appendix burst, they're dead. We are so, we are so ungrateful, in a sense, for our modern medicine. Probably more than half of us wouldn't be here because something would have taken us out. And yet that's when Jesus chose to show up, when there was no modern medicine. So he chose to show up in a culture that's oppressed amongst the people. And he didn't just, just start there. He didn't come and live in a king's palace. He lived amongst a poor family. And then it just went downhill from there. How did Jesus die? A criminal's death. Can you go lower than dying the death of a criminal? Well, let's think about it. Lethal injection or on the cross? Which would you choose? Okay, when man perfects this instrument of torture called the cross, that's when Jesus came. And he's on the cross in humiliation, naked, in the face of hatred, unlike any hatred. Okay, you guys think about this. The very tongues Jesus created, tongues that were created to say beautiful things, and they're cursing Jesus as he's dying on the cross. And in the midst of that, did his love continue or did he stop loving? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So he went from the highest place. Can you go lower, place, lower than dying a criminal's death, naked, being mocked by the tongues you created on the cross? Can you? And the answer is, Yes, you can. Try to take all the sin of mankind upon your shoulders. What that meant to bear our sin, none of us have a clue. 
but that's what he did. Holy and pure, and here defiled by the sins of all mankind. Can you go any lower? Do you see what's happened here, you guys? There can't be a greater hatred than was exhibited on the cross. You can't have a greater condescension. And you can't. Why did he do this? To secure the greatest future, the eternal future, the greatest future possible. Do you see, even if you're a literary genius, you cannot improve, you cannot come up with in your brain a greater love than something this book declares happened. And it doesn't just declare that it happened. History screams that this resurrection happened because these disciples who were a bunch of cowards and who didn't love one another, in fact, they were mean to one another, were competing for first place, were transformed so radically that they transformed the world. So what you have is a love that is greater than anything. And as I talked to this girl, I said, do you see... You, you have to decide if this is true because it makes the claim that the greatest love that ever could be, that is ever possible, actually took place in time and history in this person named Jesus. And when we see that, you, you guys, that's not just an okay definition of love, what Jesus did. It is the definition of love. You can't improve upon it. We don't need to be ashamed of Jesus we need to be extremely encouraged and, and hold him up higher than anything because in a culture that has no definition for love, what we see in Jesus is profound. And so you see, you've heard, you know John 3.16. Here in this passage, look at 1 John 3.16. It says this, by this we know love. By this we define love. This book needs to be our dictionary. When we use a word, let's look and see what this book means it to be. And this book defines love like no other. It says this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. For us, his enemies, the ones who hated him, the ones who mocked him, the ones who nailed him to the tree. So if he did this, look at John, 1 John 3.16. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. For the brothers and sisters. For each other. Do you realize in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, the word each other is used 100 times? Are you guys aware of that? Each other. There's this special thing that happens. The Bible tells us this, ready? It says, Jesus tells us, to love whom? Well, he does say love one another, but who else does he say to love? First of all, it's pretty profound what Jesus says. He says, love the stranger, love the prisoner, love the downcast, love the least of these. And the way we love them, we love him. Wow, that's profound. So he also says, love your neighbor, which can be pretty hard sometimes. Okay, he also says, love your enemies. Whoa, pray for those who persecute you. This is crazy. We're also told to love our families. Husbands, love your wives, children. There is a special love that exists in the family. But then 
This new commandment has to do with loving one another. Why? Why, are we, we to, why is this a new special command? Well, when the church was born, here's what happens. You can love your enemy, right? And you, we are supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to pray for those. So what does love mean? Is it, I feel good feelings for my enemy? You know, first of all, love is not just a feeling. Let me tell you this much. And how do we know that? It's not just a feeling because love can be, feel angry. Love can feel extremely frustrated. Love can feel extremely sad. Love can be every emotion. Love is way more than an emotion. It's, it's God-given. God gives it to us. It starts with God. He gives us this affection to love somebody else. It means you care about them, and you want their best. That's what love means. And sometimes that makes you angry. If you see somebody that you care about doing something really dumb and destroying themselves, there's going to be sorrow, there's going to be anger in that love. So when we love each other, our kids, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but some of you have kids who are, have turned your love off. You still love them, but they are not receiving it. There's no mutuality there. And you want them, you want to see the eternal best for them, but they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, which means they're saying no to eternity, right? You want that for them, but you can only do so much, and pretty soon they say, hey, leave me alone. What can I do? But in the body of Christ, this is the way that, that makes it different. When we come here and we say, I'm part of this fellowship, what you're saying is not only am I ready to love other people, which means I'm, I'm ready to sacrifice and give up my life, but I'm also ready to receive love, which means if I'm going a direction I shouldn't be going, and a brother comes and says, hey, Jonathan, you're going somewhere you shouldn't be going, how do I receive that? Wow. Because the goal is... When I come into the body of Christ, my goal is to become like whom? Jesus. And you have every right when you see me not. If you see me speaking unkind words to my wife, you have every right to say, whoa, that's not okay, Jonathan. Because that's what the body of Christ does. It's committed to somebody's best. It wants to see them grow. And Does that make sense? So when we come into the body of Christ, we're agreeing I want to be like Jesus, and I need your help. I'm here to help you. The goal of Jesus is there, and it's before us. And that's the whole gist of this passage. It's saying we're here to lay down our lives for each other, but we have to be able to receive it. We don't say, hey, it's none of your business how I talk to my wife. No, it is my business if you say you're a brother in Christ. So it is my business if you're struggling with something. I need to come alongside you, and we need to be willing to receive it. It's, it's hurtful. It's hard when someone says, Jonathan, you need to change. But the reality is I, I need to change a lot. My wife is first and foremost not my wife. Guess what she is? My sister in Christ. And she's committed to seeing me grow to be more like Jesus. And she says hard things to me when she has to. And it's my job to welcome them. 
And that's where love can really exist. Jesus loves everybody. Does everybody receive that love? No, a lot of people reject it. And they can't experience the love that Jesus has. It's the same thing. You can love your every... And we are called to love everybody. But in the body of Christ, we're called to receive it. And we're called to be unique. And that's what Jesus told his disciples. So this love is this affection that cares. And it seeks the highest good and eternal benefit of another. No matter what the sacrifice. And that's what we're called to be in the body of Christ. We're, you can't just do that on Sunday mornings when we're sitting here. We have to be membering one another. We have to be in those relationships. I've seen some of the most beautiful things happen when sin is confronted in a brother or sister's life and it's received. And the people stay with it even though it's hard and we all have so far to go. But that's what love does. It seeks the highest good, the eternal benefit of another. And quite frankly, it receives it as well. Remember the girl that came to my office at the beginning of this sermon? It was, I was preaching over at Good Shepherd again. And after church, this girl came up and she goes, do you remember me? And I go, no, I don't. I was a girl in your office that was leaving my husband and having an affair. I go, I remember you. <laughs> she goes, I gave my life to Jesus and he has changed it and he has given us our marriage back. Isn't that neat? Psychology is not the source of love. It's a dead end apart from Jesus. Philosophy is not the source of love. It's a dead end apart from Jesus. Jesus is the source. She found it. Lord, thank you that you love us, that you gave your life for us, that you show us what love is. And Lord, we come now to the table to receive your love. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.